From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the wood paneling and the air hockey table. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hi to all of you catching The Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those, of course, who listen and watch on The Conspiracy Show YouTube channel. If you haven't already done so, please check it out and hit that red subscription button. And The Conspiracy Show app, of course. Those listening on The Conspiracy Show app, wherever. And however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. And I thank you for your fine company, Steve Ubaney is standing by, the author, Who Murdered FDR? The True Story They Don't Want You to Know. This is Volume 2 in his Who Murdered book series. Just a reminder, no live YouTube stream tonight, and if you can't wait a whole week before the next Conspiracy Show, you need to check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Listen and subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and uh, while you're at it check out the website strangeplanet.ca strangeplanet.ca we've given it an overhaul a fresh coat of paint and it's uh, far more easy it's far easier uh, to navigate and uh, far more mobile friendly as well all right uh, before the break, we were talking with uh, Steve Ubaney uh, about FDR and how he was slowly being poisoned uh, from within the White House. Now, I want to talk about uh, certain individuals surrounding uh, FDR, and uh, I want to talk about his mistresses. He had a number of them, uh, including uh, a Lucy Mercer, uh, who... Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt found out about, and she basically gave the president an ultimatum. What was that ultimatum? Hmm. Lucy Mercer was the social secretary to Eleanor Roosevelt, and she had a 30-year affair with FDR, and um, actually one of FDR's daughters had arranged um, meetings for Lucy and FDR. So um, here's um, cousin Eleanor, also his wife, who finds um, love letters back and forth and tells FDR, hey, look, if you want a divorce, I'll give you a divorce. You can be with her. So, you know, FDR basically says, you know, um, I'm not going to disgrace my family name and my political career with a divorce, and I'm not going to have this scandal happen on my watch. So it, that was the pivotal point in their marriage. They basically became a, a marriage of convenience. They went their separate ways. So when he dies... Um, April 12, 1945, in Warren Springs, Georgia. She's nowhere to be found. Um, who is to be found is um, Lucy, Lucy Mercer. He, he swore that he wouldn't carry on a fair road, but did anyway. One of those things. Um, so it's an interesting interesting little plot that uh, that weaves through the FDR White House. Right. Um, now, who... There have been many things uh, said about FDR's death. One person, actually two doctors wrote a book claiming that he had died of cancer and said that there was a wart over his eye that was uh, was causing problems that had grown into his brain and, and so forth. And I always say that, you know, I've seen people die from cancer, unfortunately. I've never seen them go from 
bad to worse and bad to worse and good again and bad to worse. Usually they just drift off and die. Um, I've never seen anybody with cancer end up uh, bipolaring back and forth from vibrant health to death door and all of these crazy things. So um, I think you'll find my book to be a little bit different, and I try and back it up as much as possible because it is a hot button top. Sure. I want to talk another about another woman uh, that was at Warm Springs, at the Little White House in Warm Springs on April 12th, 1945. Who was Elizabeth Shumatov? Oh, boy. Uh, Elizabeth Shumatov is a very interesting woman, and I got a lot of information on her from the book that she published. She was, uh, if you've never seen her paintings or her artwork, you have to. You have to Google it. This is probably one of the most incredible painting uh, you know, painters I've ever seen. And uh, she was a she was a defected Russian. Her and her husband Leo came to this country and lived in multiple locations around Long Island and that era of uh, New York State. And um, she was an Avanov. Her parents were high ranking in the in the Russian government. She defected again again like I said with my <laughs> with her husband Leo, who was quote unquote on a mission according to her book, but she never quite says what this mission is. So he goes on to work for the um, Sigorsky Aviation Company as a business manager with no business experience. Sigorsky, also a Russian. She ends up being um, a, a painter who travels the, the country painting for all of the people that can't stand Roosevelt, all of the garden club from the DuPonts to the, to the Hiltons, and painting their portraits and, and so forth. So. She was at Warm Springs, Georgia, with her photographer, um, Nicholas uh, Kubikinski, in front of the president when he dies. So, Nicholas Kubikinski, I know I have to get boring, I'm sorry, bear with me. There's a good ending here, I promise. Nicholas Kubikinski, that was the name, he was also a defected Russian. That was his, his naturalization papers were Kubikinski. It was changed to Cobbins and it was later changed to Nicholas Robbins. He was her photographer, snapping stills of the president so she could work late at night and not keep the president tied up for with her time. So these are two Russian plants painting at the yard in a room alone with him when the man dies. So is it is it possible then that, that Nicholas Robbins, as he was then known, or the the portrait painter Elizabeth Shumatov, were the ones administering the poison. Uh, it's entirely possible. I'm not going to give the ending of the book away, but yeah, you're not far off. Um, you know, there's no way, and we have to back up a second. We have to put ourselves cast in this time period of the Waltons, okay? There's no way that Secret Service is going to verify Nicholas Robbins, who's on his third alias. Um, they were just trusted friends uh, from Elizabeth, from Lucy Mercer and Missy Lahan to come paint this, this president. There's no way they were being verified uh, or uh, checked out by Secret Service. It would have been impossible. So we were a little more naive at the time, you know, not like today. Today, it wouldn't matter who you are if you're on the president, you have to get checked out. So it was an entire. It was very possible that, um, well, very probable actually that. He was, you know, he was being uh, uh, dosed with something to, uh, to to murder him by those two people. But and as you point out, Elizabeth Shumatov 
was also painting portraits of you know a who's who of America's elite, uh, many of whom have had absolute disdain for Roosevelt and his his policies, which were costing them uh, a fortune. Oh, he was costing he was costing the money people in, in the Garden Club of America millions and millions of dollars. Any one of the and she was with their she was within their uh, their. Um, their company within the 12 months prior to Roosevelt's death. And again, I'll go down the list, the DuPonts, Eastman Kodak, uh, Harvey Firestone, Henry Ford, Carnegie Steel, uh, the Heinz family, the Hilton family, the Mellon family, um, Robert Woodruff of Coca-Cola, any one of these people would have slipped her money to poison the president just because it was in their best interest. He was, he was absolutely crippling their businesses. And now they so had any, someone who had open it, and free access to the president. Exactly. So in my book, in all of my books, I lay out motive, means, and opportunity. I cite these to the suspects, figure out who they'll be, and I screen them through motive, means, and opportunity um, in this investigation to come out with the person who murdered this murdered uh, the subject matter. The subject. And in, in this case, it happens to be FDR. So... You know, as the end of the war is coming, you know, Stalin is buddies with FDR, or so FDR thinks. FDR is proposing the four policemen to the world, uh, you know, China, the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. Stalin is, has to be one of the biggest megalomaniacs in history. He doesn't want to share the world with FDR. He wants to rule the world. He's not going to play the king with FDR. So, you know, we have to dig into Stalin, and my book does a really good job of doing that, to understand how this happened. Um, Stalin murdered both of his wives because they knew too much. Stalin murdered his own doctor because he knew too much. He murdered uh, about a million, million and a half of his own countrymen for something to do. He was probably, I mean, if you look up megalomaniac in the dictionary, there should be a picture of Joseph Stalin there. I mean, this guy was an absolute murdering mental case. So, he wanted, he wanted, he being Stalin, he wanted FDR out of the way at the end of the war. He wanted to deal with Harry Truman. Apparently, he didn't know Harry Truman very well, but he knew that he was uh, a political newcomer. He wasn't going to be as shrewd. FDR was a shrewd customer, and he was a good negotiator. And boy, did he and, read and, Truman wrong? <laughs> did he underestimate oh God, Truman? God. Listen, uh, Stephen, we'll take a, a time out. When we come back, I want to talk to you about another central figure in this plot: Harry Hopkins, one of FDR's closest advisors. Could he be a suspect? Back with more of the conspiracy show, along with Steve Ubaney, who murdered FDR. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Steve Ubaney is with us. Who Murdered FDR? This is Volume 2 in his Who Murdered book series. Who Murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. And uh, as Steve has uh, laid out the uh, the case, uh, Roosevelt was slowly poisoned. Um, Harry Hopkins, one of his closest advisors. Let's talk about him. How... How close was Hopkins to Stalin? Before we get to that, Richard, I just want to tell everybody, if you want to order this book, don't go to Amazon and order this book. Go to my website, 
order a book, go to whomurderedbooks.com, uh, buy it there. It's much cheaper, and I'll be able to get you a copy out. And, you know, we're coming into the holiday season here. I don't know where in the world you can get somebody off your Christmas list for 16 bucks. So it might be good <laughs> to pick up a couple copies. Uh, they're also available on ebook and audiobook everywhere. But go to whomurderedbooks.com. I'm currently butting heads with Amazon. So I just wanted to get that out there. As far as Harry Hopkins is concerned, Harry Hopkins is probably one of the most important, one of the most important people in uh, the World War II era that no one knows about. Harry Hopkins was, uh, <laughs> um, he was because FDR couldn't travel because of the wheelchair and the leg braces. He needed someone to go overseas with him and go meet with Stalin and other other dignitaries in other countries and be his representative. And Harry Hopkins was that person. Um, Harry Hopkins came to know FDR through the Communist Party of the United States of America, the CPUSA. And um, they were housed in the middle of New York City on uh, 253rd West, um, 23rd Street, actually, in New York City. He was friends with Henrietta Nesbitt, who was the White House cook, and Eleanor Roosevelt. So they met through this connection, and he ended up being involved, very involved, with um, just about everything uh, in the New Deal. As a matter of fact, he, he was one of the architects of the New Deal. So he was uh, he was quite lived at the White House. FDR wouldn't let him leave. <laughs> he was he was quite influential to FDR, and he was uh, he was definitely running around the, the world um, on uh, on FDR's behalf. So he was a very interesting and pivotal figure in history that no one seems to know about. He was so powerful, you describe him as a co-president. Absolutely. And it seemed like Harry Hopkins was to FDR what um, Edwin House was to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, of course, was FDR's mentor um, coming through the, uh, the ranks, made him assistant secretary of the Navy, his quote-unquote um, alter ego was Edwin Mundell House, who started the Communist Party in the United States of America. So FDR, Woodrow Wilson had his uh, right-hand man, and FDR certainly had his, which was Harry Hopkins. So um, very interesting stuff. He also started the Lend-Lease program, um, which was basically an American program to defeat the Axis by distributing oil and other materials by way of the U.K., China, and the Soviet Union. Eventually went to France and all the other allied nations. And they basically did, you know, it included warships and planes and other weaponry. So it was very interesting the role that Harry Hopkins had with uh, within the FDR White House, the long-standing FDR White House. Uh, you, you write that he, it was discovered decades later that he was a Soviet spy and operative. Uh, what did you find? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's two KGB defectors, um, Oleg Kovacinski, and I am not going to even turn out, try to pronounce this man's name. Uh, <laughs> it's just a Russian gentleman, because there's no way I'm going to pronounce this one. I'm looking at for the, for the first name. They both identified Harry Hopkins as the mysterious, quote-unquote, Agent 19, who was contacting the Soviet Union um, with uh, information on the Manhattan Project and the Bonona Project. So he was definitely a plant for Stalin. He was definitely <laughs> he was definitely up to no good within the government. But um, back then, 
you know, things were a little different. Now, was Hopkins present at Warm Springs on April 12, 1945? Harry Hopkins was not at Warm Springs. But he could have given the order to somebody, whether it was uh, whether it was uh, Elizabeth Shumatov, the artist, or or Nicholas uh, Robbins, the the photographer, also a Soviet. I mean, is it is it possible that 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 Harry Hopkins, acting on orders from Stalin, may have directed someone to slip Roosevelt the poison? Well, I, I would say it's not only um, possible; it's quite probable. He was really baked in the cake of the Roosevelt White House. Um, he was the Secretary of Commerce. He was one of his closest advisors. He was the architect of the New, Geo, the New Deal and many relief programs. He was his chief diplomatic advisor during World War II to um, all of the communist com- uh, countries. Uh, he definitely was—he definitely could have given that order to the other political operatives. I believe that he was working in and around the White House with a secret purpose that they (laughs) FDR was basically being poisoned from within and without within the White House for a reason and I think that that was uh, it was later discovered to be a Soviet operative so I would say it's beyond possible I would say it's quite probable so uh, let's um, let's talk about the last few days of Roosevelt's life He, he he goes to Warm Springs as he often did to sort of recover and rest up uh, this is in uh, Georgia, and this is on the eve of him delivering a, a speech which is going to open up the, the United Nations. So let's just talk about what, what happens in the, in the final days of Roosevelt's life in, in Warm Springs, and who's present. I'm sorry, Richard, we have a terrible connection. You broke up one more time, please. All right, let's let's talk about the last days of Roosevelt's life in Warm Springs. This is he goes there to rest up on the eve of delivering a speech at the at the sort of the it's an inaugural address of this new institution called the United Nations. The United Nations is definitely something that Stalin didn't want, but yes, Roosevelt had you know he had a lot on his plate coming to the end of the war, trying to figure out the post-war world in a way where no one would have the upper hand. Again, something that Stalin didn't want, and he is entertaining at the White House. So here he has, um, <laughs> he has, <laughs> he has all of his favorite people at the White House, uh, the little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia, where he's working on the papers. He's having his portrait painted. He's having his love interest there. He's got a couple of Secret Service guys there. Um, he has uh, his favorite cook, because the cook at the White House was terrible. I mean, how good could the food be if you're being poisoned? So he has his favorite cook making his favorite his favorite stew, and he's making himself as comfortable as possible, working through these enormous tasks for a man who is virtually half-dead. So the night before, the, actually the couple nights before, he is eating, believe it or not, Stalin's caviar, drinking Stalin's vodka, which Stalin had given to him, which I just can't believe that, um, you know, <laughs> he actually, FDR had actually admitted, if you read my book, he actually had, uh, admitted to believing that he poisoned his wife. Why this man would be, would be eating his caviar is completely beyond me, but he is. So this is what they're doing um, in the day or two preceding the president's death. 
he has a barbecue he's going to attend to, you know, doing a couple social things. He's trying to rest as much as possible, and his doctor is checking his uh, his blood pressure, you know, almost almost every 15 minutes. And, you know, he's having problems getting his health in order. So this were the last couple days of, uh, of FDR's life. And, of course, the, the famous... A portrait that Shumatov was working on remained unfinished because, obviously, he died in the midst of that. Uh, you, you have a, a, the last photograph taken of Roosevelt the day before he died. And uh, so what's happening uh, around lunch on April the 12th? He is doing, quote-unquote, doing his laundry. And what that means is opening his mail and he has papers strewn all over all the tables and all the chairs. And he's trying to go through the paperwork and, and uh, you know, go through his correspondences. And he has one of his favorite valets there, um, Arthur Prettyman. Uh, it was his personal valet because the president is crippled. So Mr. Prettyman bathes him, clothes him. He has him there helping him with his laundry and answering his correspondences. And he has about 15 or 20 more minutes to work, and he advises the... Um, you know, the, the, the artist and her photographer, that they're going to have to start wrapping things up. Um, he had just finished lunch. He had just finished something to drink. And he's dead. Very interesting timing. What were his last and words? Then, do we know? I'm sorry? What were his last words? Do we know? Uh, he crushed the back of his head, according to multiple sources, and said, I have a terrific headache. So... Uh, when we talk about poisoning of opposition leaders, I know people tend to roll their eyes because they think that this is, um, they think this is, I don't know, completely outlandish or something. But, you know, in my book, I actually go back and I give the whole poisoning of opposition leaders that started in 1331 when it was started, um, uh, really started to be used as, uh, as a form of weaponry. Everyone from Rasputin to the Apostle John and the Apostle John in the Bible poison, and of course political poisonings peaked during the Italian Renaissance in the 14th century. So, even today, uh, presidents and high dignitaries have food tasters, and every president since the since the 1800s has used a similar method. Um, some of the people, uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius, Napoleon, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Queen Elizabeth, Lincoln. All of these people had food tasters. And some of the people even used dogs and military prisoners and even monkeys <laughs> to test their food. So this is this is a real concern. As a matter of fact, in 1993, the eighth, Turkey's eighth president was poisoned drinking a glass of lemonade at the Bulgarian embassy. So that's as early as in recent memory as 1993. So, I mean, this is definitely a concern even today. Uh, modern U.S. presidents have an entire team called the Presidential Food Safety Team to set up a secure zone where the president and the first family can eat um, within the White House without complication. And, of course, when they travel outside of the White House, then they go back to other other things to make the, to make the uh, you know, the, the dignitary as, um, as safe as possible. Traveling, um, Reagan, both Bushes, 
President Obama, President Clinton, they've all used food tasters. So this is really, when we talk about poisoning a president, this is not an outlandish thing. I mean, this is, this is a real thing. I mean, this is a real concern. So, and we had people, <laughs> and one guy get a hold of me and said, you know, it seems pretty far-fetched. It wasn't that far-fetched. When, um, you know, when all of the backdrop was, that is going on, I think that the American public might be a little naive, but, um, Paul Roosevelt found this out, found this out the hard way, and they could not wait to get this guy buried. It was 69 hours from death to travel to grave. That's it. They couldn't get him in the ground fast enough. Was there an autopsy? And there was no autopsy. There was no embalming. So, you know, the kicker of the whole thing is that the rumor is swirling around Georgia and around Washington, D.C. for a decade after, better than a decade after. And it got to the point where Eleanor Roosevelt got so tired of hearing this, she commissioned the private investigator to look into the, the you know, what was going on. So this private investigator gets a hold of, uh, you know, the hours that be in the White House and said he wants the president's medical records. The medical records were stolen from a locked file at Bethesda. Four people had those keys in the whole country. So if there's nothing to hide, why hide it? Did you say Bethesda? Bethesda, yep. Bethesda Naval Hospital. Wow. Yep. Magical Bethesda where there all the go. cool stuff happens. 18 years later, it would uh, it would figure again in the death of a president. Go yep. figure, Bethesda. Absolutely. So what about rumors that Roosevelt's body had turned black shortly after his death? You know, I had read that, but there was no... I could. I'll tell you what, nothing would surprise me at this point after uncovering what I uncovered. So, but I didn't would that, put it in my book because I couldn't verify it. But would that be consistent with poisoning? I believe that it would be. What happened? Of course, I'm no medical, I'm no medical expert, right. but I've talked to a forensic pathologist and three doctors about this, and they believe that it would be consistent with poisoning. Again, I have no, I have no, I have no way to verify that, so I didn't put it in my book. But it would not surprise me. What happened to Shumatov and uh, her photographer, the other Russian, immediately after Roosevelt died? Were they questioned? They went on a car excursion with Lucy Mercer across country, trying to get as far away from there as possible. To my knowledge, they were not questioned. Um, I think that they did have attention to them. You know, I mean, I think that they were. They were questioned, but they certainly weren't questioned under oath as uh, any sort of suspects or anything like that. I just believe that, you know, they were questioned as to, you know, what happened, what did you see sort of thing. And I believe that was by the news media, no law enforcement agency questioned them. Now, we have two Russians in close personal contact with the president. They flee, seemingly, immediately after his death, and no one thinks that maybe they should be apprehended or at least detained or questioned that's rather odd that's very odd and again this is in elizabeth shumatov's book she goes into this at length um the driver of the car is her photographer um nicholas uh Cobbins or kubikinski or i don't exactly know what name he was going by at that time i believe it was maybe it was robbins at that point he had many great names so nicholas robbins is the driver uh, Lucy Mercer is in the car, and Elizabeth Shumatov is in the car, and they're trying as hard, as fast as possible to get out of there. And they 
end up going across country and you know hearing the the news uh, you know on radio and wherever they stopped for gas and so forth extremely odd should never have happened they should have been questioned um they should have at least been persons of interest they are in my book i'll tell you that um both of them are persons of interest and suspects in my book and they, they well should have been but back in the time period of the world i think we may have been a little naive you know you're dealing with you know the 1940s in the 1940s you know we were a little bit different as a society back then and we probably didn't want to believe that such a thing was possible or probable so we right. were not questioned or detained all right steven we'll take another time out who murdered fdr the true story they don't want you to know peering into the shadows where the truth often hides you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard sarat from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now this is a short uh, segment, uh, Stephen. We'll uh, chat a little bit. We'll take another time out, and then we'll uh, we'll finish up with a longer segment. But uh, I'm trying to understand why or how it would benefit. I mean, we've you've alluded to it, but how it would benefit uh, Stalin to have Roosevelt out of the way if Roosevelt was a fan. Of Stalin, why would he feel the need to get rid of Roosevelt? Why wouldn't he? Uh, I mean, he had basically infiltrated the United States to such an extent. It seemed like he had everything going his way with Roosevelt in power. Well, <laughs> Roosevelt uh, Roosevelt might have been a fan of Stalin, but nobody really knew Stalin, um, and he was again towards the end of the war. He, uh, you know. Stalin had his eye on the post-war world the entire time. That was one of the reasons why he was after us to open up the other front, the D-Day invasion. He was after us, you know, to start another front, and he kept pounding and pounding. He said, you know, you know, we need to we need to open up another front so we can get behind Hitler, so we can catch him between. Stalin didn't need that. That was a trick to see how powerful and what kind of a military uh, military presence that we could generate. So the entire time that this is going on, this this conflict, this war is going on, Stalin has got his eye on, on China, and he's got his eye on infiltrating and taking over America. Uh, Stalin, is, is he's striving for world domination. In the same way that he dominated Russia, he had his eye on dominating the world. So he didn't have time for anybody in the United States who was going to stand in the way. So, um, again... Uh, Roosevelt wanted the four policemen of the world towards the end of the war, so something like this never happened again. He wanted Russia, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China. None of that <laughs> at any uh, was what uh, was what Stalin wanted. He didn't want to divide the world with FDR. He wanted to rule the world in the same way that he ruled Russia. I mean, he knocked off everyone that was in his way politically. I mean, if you read, it will make more sense when you read the read my book. When you start dealing with uh, what Stalin, what Stalin really is, and what lengths he went to rule his country, uh, he was he was uh, one of the first members of the Politburo. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, one of the first members of the Politburo, and he managed um, the Bolshevik Revolution with six revolutionaries, and he ended up killing all of them and knocking them all off. To become, you know, the party's the party's leader, 
And even Lennon started to realize towards the end of his life what a hideous monster this was. Um, Lennon wrote in his will, quote, Comrade Stalin is too rude, too dangerous, remove him. Uh, those in, uh, after Roosevelt's death, they used to pick on Stalin. They used to call him Comrade Filing Guard, Pen Pusher, the Gray Blur. They didn't think he was any, he was any uh, threat to him at all. One by one, they all met their demise, including both of his wives. Anyone who stood in Stalin's way got murdered. So after FDR gets murdered, Stalin sends representatives from Russia to check and make sure that he's really dead. I mean, he was quite a paranoid goofball. So it's spelled out very well, very well in my, uh, very well in my book as to why he needed FDR out of the way. You make the point in your book that had Roosevelt lived, uh, and he would have then been president until at least 1948, and who knows, he could have, he could have won again, um, because there were no term limits. You make the point, had Roosevelt lived, there would not have been a Cold War. Explain. In my opinion, there probably wouldn't have been. You know, all total, there were 87 conflicts related to the Cold War. And, you know, ending in... Uh, in 1991, Soviet coup d'etat. I, I don't believe that would have happened because uh, I believe that Stalin had met his mental match with Roosevelt. And I think that he would have kept uh, Stalin in check all the way around the globe. And, um, and I think that, that was the real reason why um, Truman uh, started the Marshall Plan. And it was to, uh, it was to help rebuild the the European economies, uh, primarily Poland and Germany and their neighbors to keep them out of, you know, falling into the Soviet hands. So I don't believe that, in my opinion, no. I think that, uh, I think that FDR would have been a step or two ahead of Stalin. I don't believe that that would have happened, uh, the way it did. And I think Stalin basically felt the same way. He know, he knew towards the end of the war that, that, uh, FDR needed to go. What was the most surprising piece of evidence, the most surprising document you uncovered while researching this book? I think it would have to be a tie. I think it would be the level at which um, FDR and Eleanor were involved in the Communist Party. The same Communist Party was funded by Stalin in New York City to overthrow the government. I think that that would be a tie right along with President Roosevelt full well knowing that um, Pearl Harbor had to happen. And, you know, when the documents came out, you know, I, it just affirmed what I, what I had already known. So that was pretty shocking. Another thing that was shocking to me was Germany. Germany, just like Japan, Japan is an oil debtor nation. Germany is a food debtor nation. And one of the things they tried to do to get hit, to break Hitler was put a blockade around the country and starve him out. So, you know, Hitler had to make a decision. Do I feed my soldiers or do I feed my prisoners? Well, obviously he fed his soldiers. So this is why you see all these emaciated pictures of these poor Jews and other prisoners who are basically skin and bone. Um, you know, not that Hitler would have taken great care of them, but... You know, he needed to divide his rations accordingly. And I think in a roundabout way, we're kind of responsible for that. 
That was also shocking. You know, the other side of history, don't look at it too hard because the other side of history hurts a little. All so, right. Um, you know, to the victor go the spoils. Okay, Stephen, stay put. One last go round. Who murdered FDR? The true story they don't want you to know. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Another curious aspect of this whole case is Eleanor Roosevelt and the massive FBI files on her. They were on her case for like 40 years, starting in 1924. Why was the FBI, I don't know, monitoring, surveilling Eleanor Roosevelt as early as 1924? You know, Richard, that's a, I, I have that answer for you. I was shocked myself when I looked at the, this three-drawer filing cabinet just loaded with documentation that they had been investigating her for such a time. Possibly they thought she was a double agent. I don't have any idea, but it didn't make sense to me then, and it doesn't make sense to me now. I mean, in the interest of national security, I understand why, when you're connecting yourself with Stalin and communists, and Stalin is sponsoring the CPUSA in New York City to overthrow the government, I can understand why that would happen. I don't know why it'd be happening as early as the date that you suggested. That's a new one on me. Aside from uncovering the fact that she was a communist sympathizer, what else did they find about her. What else did you find in those FBI files? You know, I glanced over them for her, but my investigation really wasn't into her. I spent maybe half an hour going through them. Basically, what I saw was wiretaps of her discussing her political leanings and what she wanted to do with the country, with FDR, with people who, you know, the government was uh, an interest in national security. They were watching. That's basically what I saw. Some of it was ridiculous. Some of it was just rumor and innuendo. Some of it was coincidence. Some of it was hard-crunching investigative work. You couldn't reprint these letters. You didn't have permission to reprint the, the photographs of a couple of particular letters in the book. But they had to do with something about she was scolding somebody for ordering food for the president outside of the White House. What was behind Henry that? Henrietta Nesbitt was the White House cook. And I use the word cook loosely. She was a horrific, horrid cook, and the only reason she kept her job is that she was such good friends with Eleanor. FDR would have fired her long ago, and uh, if he did, he probably would have been in much better health uh, because her, her food is horrific. There's one part of my book where um, Hemingway is visiting the White House, and he describes the meal as rubber chicken and rainwater soup and all of this horrid, horrid food. And um, there, there's a time where, again, in the interest of national security, you're only allowed to get food from certain locations. There are approved locations that food is supposed to come from. There was a time when she's battling back and forth with the president. She was making the same dish over and over and over again, and she started to get food outside of her approved places, and she got her hands slapped for it. And I wanted to put that in my book. I wanted to uh, take a picture of that and put it in there because I thought it was very interesting. At the same time, when Roosevelt was getting so sick, she was changing where she was getting the food from. So I was trying to get a picture or a photo of that and put that in my book, but they wouldn't allow that to happen, which I thought was a little bit odd because they didn't really restrict me on doing anything else. 
you know, the documents, and just you get a little bit of a thrill, you know, when you're holding top secret documents in your hand from World War II. This is interesting because my understanding from your book is that Nesbitt was very close and very sympathetic to Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt and FDR were living totally separate lives at this point because of his infidelity. Now all of a sudden, Mrs. Nesbitt is sourcing food from outside approved sources. Is the suggestion then possibly that Nesbitt is involved in the poisoning of FDR? It's entirely possible. I'm not going to give my book away, but I'll tell you that she is a suspect when I screen people through motive, means, and opportunity. Her name does come up multiple times. I also find it interesting that when FDR's medical records are stolen from a locked file in Bethesda, four people had those keys. And I know I just went on a tangent, but I never finished discussing this, and I think it's worth mentioning. Four people had those keys in Washington. One of the people who had the keys was Vice Admiral Ross P. McIntyre, our president's doctor, the same person who, in 1946, wrote the book entitled The White House Physician. So I believe those they were stolen to cover up what happened to him and also help him write this book. The book is actually it's on Amazon with a whopping one-star review. <laughs> um, but but the, it's a hardcover book came out in 1946, which is just a few months after our president died. So I think it's pretty obvious who got those records and, and what happened to them. History sometimes is, and I know people hate history because it's boring, but if you look at it objectively, it's really not that damn boring. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. What happened to Harry Hopkins? Harry Hopkins eventually moved out of the White House, which was extremely odd. He had, uh, I believe, stomach cancer, and he moved out of the White House. He got remarried, and he died out of the White House. Why he left the White House when he was getting really good medical care, everyone in the White House, because FDR was getting care, the doctor was tending to all of them, why he would leave the White House while he was getting you know, top-notch care to run off and die somewhere else is a little bit interesting, but, you know, die he did. Do you think the CIA and the FBI know that Roosevelt was murdered? Huh. I really don't know. It, you know, nothing would shock me. I'm not going to try and speak for the government, but, you know, nothing, nothing would shock me. How is this book being received? Because uh, this obviously flies in the face of a lot of conventional wisdom. Well, you know, it bothers people because of, you know, people like the normalcy bias. They like to believe and repeat what they've been told for years and years and years and years. When someone like me comes along and reinvestigates things with deathbed confessions and you know books that have been published and, you know, new evidence and so forth, they love it and they hate it. They love it because... You know, they, they recognize the work that went into it, and the book sells well. But they also don't like it because I think that people like two and two to equal the four that they're used to. You know, they don't want two and two to equal four and a half. I think it really screws with their uh, with their normalcy bias. You know, so the book sells well. People like it. It's disturbing. You know, and oftentimes the truth is disturbing. And George Carlin said it best. They don't want. Uh, society of people capable of critical thinking it really doesn't suit their interests they meaning you know who are in power at the, at the top of our government they want people to be just smart enough to do some paperwork and keep the machinery going and just dumb enough not to realize how badly they're being screwed over and when someone like me comes along and reinvestigates things you know it's bothersome but it's fascinating and i think people are taking it that way
Who Murdered FDR? This is Volume 2. Just to give us a quick summation of Volume 1, which is Who Murdered Elvis? Yep, a lot of people don't know that Elvis Presley was murdered. Elvis died mysteriously days before he was supposed to turn state's evidence against the mob. And I befriended one of the people who was not only the investigator at Graceland, but he was the person at Elvis's autopsy. He was charged with the responsibility of checking Elvis's heart out and realized there was no evidence of a heart attack. And Elvis Presley was allergic to codeine, but there was no codeine found in his body because there was no anaphylaxis in his body, but it showed up in one and only one of the three toxicology reports. So that's another very interesting book, which we haven't talked about on this one. People are shocked and uh, absolutely stunned by what they're hearing. For many, this is entirely well, new information. Most people, you know, well, it, he was sickly. He was 63. The life expectancy back then wasn't, you know, nearly what it is today. So it makes sense that he would die of natural causes or a cerebral hemorrhage. It's alarming to hear that, you know, we like truth, justice in the American way. Unfortunately, if truth was suddenly introduced in American society, the whole system would collapse. I don't think that history has told us the truth on many occasions, this being one of them. Go to whomurderedbooks.com, all lowercase, one word, whomurderedbooks.com, and get yourself a copy, and I think you'll love it. This is Volume 2. There's going to be six eventually. What's coming up next? Coming up next, well, the first one is Who Murdered Elvis, and then we have Who Murdered FDR, Volume 2. Volume 3 is Who Murdered Elvis, the fifth year anniversary, because more evidence came out. I'm writing Who Murdered Princess Diana. I just started writing it earlier in this month. So um, look for that May, June of 2019. And I can tell you it's shaping up to be the best work I've ever done. So I think people are really going to love that book. Again, it's whomurderedbooks.com, whomurderedbooks.com. Steve, always a delight. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure. Steve Ubaney. WhoMurderedBooks.com. All right, we will be back next week with a brand new program. Thanks to Ian Robertson, Ryan White, Albert Vinzel, all of you for listening. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. 